Little ones can be dismissed for uh, children's worship right now. If you're doing this for the first time, you're here for the first time, they're going to that little building right next to us. It's called a treehouse. And they have a kind of an age-appropriate time together. The last Sunday of the month, they join us for corporate worship. And it kind of gives the littlest ones a chance to kind of ease into this picture of sitting at a table and dining on good nourishment. The noisy bunch, let's let them get out of there. Let's start with prayer. I need to, we need to lift up little uh, Phoebe Webb. She was born just a few minutes ago. We'd hoped that she'd stay in the womb for a little bit longer, but uh, she is, as of before the beginning of our corporate worship time, alive. And uh, she's one pound, seven ounces. And um, we want to beg God for her little soul, for her life, her health. Uh, we want to pray for Marie. We want to pray for Jeremy. And pray that those who are not believing on Christ will see God's hand all over it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we beg for little Phoebe. While we gather this morning and we celebrate the, uh, the work of Christ among the living, we beg for a little bitty new life. Hours old, minutes old, that you will sustain this life. And that Phoebe will be a little walking testimony of your grace and your mercy and your sovereignty and your power and your ability to do all things. Lord, we pray that little Phoebe will be sustained and Lord, we pray in that that your name will be glorified as a result of this little billboard called Phoebe of grace and mercy and power. Pray too that there will be a sweet testimony to mommy and daddy and to friends and doctors and nurses and Crosspoint and Greenville. Lord, we beg for this little life. Lord, also this morning I want to pray for a brother who's pastoring in Quinlan, Luke Panter. Lord, I pray for him in this walk, Lord. I pray that he's wrecked in the Word. I pray that as he reads, that he has times during the week, as he studies and and pokes and prods and claws and rages that there are times where he just throws up his hands and he says how awesome you are. There are times where he busts out in song even when he's by himself and that he weeps and laughs. Lord, I pray that all that will infect, first of all, his heart and that that will overflow to his wife, to his family. And Lord, I pray that it will spill over onto a little people that you're building. And I pray, Lord, that it will spill over into Quinlan and that sheep that haven't heard yet heard the shepherd's voice, that they'll hear it through the ministry of this little church. Lord, we pray that you'll guard this church, that you'll guard Crosspoint, that you'll guard the other Christian churches in this community from ever having a spirit of competition, that you'll guard us from that because our Lord's so ample and our field is so unsown, available, I don't know what it is, but it's out there. Lord, we pray that you'll guard our hearts, that we'll serve together on the same team. Lord, in these next few minutes, as we engage servanthood and the slavery, the slave form of Christ, 
I pray first for the shepherds in this room, for those fathers, husbands, and for those functional shepherds, those single moms that are leading out in homes and families. Lord, I pray that this morning, maybe for the first time, that what we're doing here will be viewed as something that's equipping for something that takes place after this and between these times. Lord, if that's a novel thought for some, I pray that you will open their eyes to that reality that we are being equipped for worship and wonder and that that will gush over into home and neighborhood and cubicle, workspace, friendships, relationships, Tuesday, Thursday. Praise it will just gush over into every place and this just won't be just getting our church on. But that we'll be equipped for worship and wonder. Lord, I pray for power in these words in these next few minutes. I confess and recognize that this is a difficult journey that we're going on this morning. And I pray for a spirit-empowered engagement that's beyond any one of us, it's beyond, well beyond my ability to communicate, but it's truly a spirit thing. We beg for that in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to John chapter 13. I'm glad y'all are here this morning. <clears throat> I'm glad some folks came back. If you weren't here these last couple weeks, then especially if you're a member, I urge you to engage the sermons. You need to realize that we as a people are on a journey. A lot of times over the course of my life, the sermon has kind of been this parallel thing that as I'm growing up, it kind of runs parallel to the life of the church. And there's lots of kind of busyness in the name of Jesus going on. And then there's the sermon. And you kind of jump into that when things are really hard or when the pastor's preaching on something that's really interesting to you. Oh, I need some help with that. So you kind of climb into those little series that you need and, or you think you need. And what we've realized is that the preaching and teaching of the Word is not uh, a tool of ministry of Crosspoint. It is the fuel for the ministry of Crosspoint. It drives who we are as a people. We're on a journey. So if you miss an installment, <laughs> you show up and you go, hey man, these guys are in a different place. What happened? So it's not a self-serving thing saying, hey, I want you to listen to me. It's a, God had a message for this people. When I miss a Sunday for being sick or traveling, I listen to the sermon because I want to know what God has said to this people because I'm on the journey with you. So I encourage you, especially, I mean, just always, but especially in view of what was shared last week. You know, this isn't a joke. This is not a game. It's not another entry in your daytimer. We're a people when we're on a journey. <laughs> and we're not playing games. And it, there are times where people that are on a journey together, there are times where we dance in triumph, and there are other times when somebody says, hey, okay, I call baloney. I call baloney. We might be moving in the direction of being all show, no go. Talking to talk, walking to walk, but not really being that people. Last Sunday was one of those times where we're dealing with difficult accountability issues because we're accountable to each other and we're accountable to the living God. This is not an entry in your daytimer. We're people on a journey. And it will matter in eternity. So I encourage you to engage that. We're going to John chapter 13 again this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17. 
And let me go ahead and read the first five verses, and we'll kind of just jump right on in to this sermon, get neck deep in it. I, I prayed for it during the prayer, and I want to encourage you. This morning, you have to work. Yeah, hopefully, you recognize that there's, you have a responsibility when we meet for engaging the Word also. That I'm working all week long to prepare this meal, but you have the, the responsibility of picking up the fork. Not looking out the window at the Tweety Birds or not these windows. I'm talking about imagining sitting at the table. You can't look out these windows. Talking figuratively. We're here to dine. And there's sometimes you might eat and be eating roast beef. We've got to chew on a little bit. This is one of those kind of times. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, this Jesus, who had all things in his hands, all power and dominion, this Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. These last couple of weeks, we've really primarily been engaging those first five verses. We've read the whole story just because I just want to just bathe in it. But what we considered a couple of weeks ago is we looked at this movement from the perspective of the throne room. Remember we went on that word-fueled rocket ship? It's a lame illustration. It's all I got. <laughs> this word-fueled rocket ship where we shot all the way up to the throne room and we peeked into the throne room with John in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And when we peeked in there, we looked in chapter 4 and we see the Father sitting in the throne. And we see 24 white-haired regal elders sitting around him. And all they're doing is worshiping. You know, when he makes a decision, they're going, yeah, good decision, God. We cast our crown at you. They're just casting their crowns and retrieving them, I guess. Or maybe they had little retrievers. But they're just casting. And then there are these four critters that are flying around the throne that kind of put together by committee. These weird creatures. And all they do is sing holy, holy, holy about God all day long. And then we consider this reality, this picture, as we peek through this little pinhole into the throne room with John, that there's this scroll sitting beside the Father in the throne. And this scroll has seven seals. Seven, seven of those. Audibles of a seal. These little seals, and the picture of seven in the book of Revelation means fullness. It means this scroll is really sealed when there's seven seals on it. And see, the reality is this scroll needs to be opened. But this thing's got these seals on it. And there's this loud angel that calls out, Who's worthy to open the scroll? And there's just crickets. And they look around and they look around in heaven. No, nobody here worthy. And they look down at earth and they're like, No, definitely nobody there. For no one's righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody worthy to open this scroll, this seven-sealed, super-sealed scroll that needs to be opened for the rest of the ages to unfold. 
Maybe we'll look under the earth. So they peek under the earth. And no, it's just magma. (laughs) Nobody there. So there's just crickets. But then the crickets turn into John weeping. (laughs) He's just weeping like, oh man, this thing needs to be opened. Who's going to open it? And then the lamb. Actually, what happens is one of the elders come up to John and say, hey, John, stop crying. You're looking, making a fool of yourself. Here's a Kleenex. Wipe your eyes because there is somebody worthy. Somebody can open that scroll. And look, here he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So John looks over expecting to see this big roaring lion. And he looks over there and there's a lamb standing there as if slain. And the lamb goes over there, the only one, capital O, one, worthy, goes over there and takes that scroll. And he's the one that can open the seals. And then those regal elders that are just spending all to all their days saying, Go God, great decision, casting my crowns. Now they're worshiping the Lamb. And those four critters put together by committee that are singing holy, holy all, all day long are now singing worthy is the Lamb. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. And then myriads and myriads of angels are singing. I don't know how many a myriad is, but it's a bunch. A bunch of angels are singing. And the Lamb is the center of this whole thing. And as we peek in that through the throne room, we got on that rocket ship, and then we peeked in there, and then we look back down at the upper room from the, from, from the throne room, and then we're going, wait a second, God, what are you doing down there? What are you doing in the upper room? You ought to be up here being worshipped by the myriads and myriads. You ought not be down here. God, what are you doing with a knee? (gasps) That's the question. Why are you there? You've got to go to that place before we can go to the rest of the story. If you go to the rest of the story without first going up in that little lame rocket ship to the throne room and going, wait a second, God, what are you doing here dining and supping with man? Then you lose the whole oomph of the charge that we're going to consider today. The first question we have to deal with is, God, what are you doing with a knee? And then the question that we dealt with last week was, <laughs> as crazy as that is, God, what are you doing with a knee? The next question is, what are you doing bending it? What are you doing bending it to wash nasty, old, dirty, crusty fisherman feet? <laughs> what are you doing bending a knee to wash Judas's feet? When you realize that God, first of all, took on a knee and that God bent the knee and washed these feet, then we got a real scandal on our hands. You know, I was doing some research and I found that the president, he doesn't let the custodians or the maids or any sort of workers clean the toilets in the White House. He cleans them himself. Does that surprise you? You believe that? I made that up. <laughs> that would be a scandal, though, wouldn't it? You'd be like, are you kidding me? Man, it seemed like he ought to be about more lofty matters. What's he doing getting down on his hands and knees and scrubbing around toilets? That's just kind of a little bitty shade, a little bitty glimmer of this distance that God has moved from the throne room down to the upper room and then down to his knee to wash nasty, dirty feet. As scandalous as that would be, It pales in comparison to the scandal of what we're talking about right here.
that God showed up, supped with man, took on a knee, and that God bent a knee to wash feet. Now, here's the cool thing for this morning. We've done the hard work in the last two weeks, and what I just went over, to get the oomph of this charge that he gives today. Apart from it, we've got a little moral message. Hey, go serve one another. The last couple weeks. But with it, we've got the fuel and the resources, the worship and the wonder at God showing up and God serving like a slave to fuel our service to one another. So we've done the hard work already. But let's continue on in verse 6 of John chapter 13. We'll continue on to the rest of the story to verse 17. This Jesus who had received all things into his hands, who laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water in the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. This Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but after you, afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed, resumed his place, it's almost as if John wants to remind us exactly what he just did. Because after he'd done all that, he clothes him again. He seats him back in his place. And this Jesus, he says, Do you understand what I've just done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, oh man, you are so right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now keep your finger in John. Turn over to Romans chapter 13. We're going to come right back to John. I just want to show you a glimpse of something real quick. <clears throat> I want to show you a word in this story in John chapter 13 that just doesn't do it for me. It's the word ought. I'll read the verse again this is the charge that we're going to spend most of our time on this morning if i then your lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet now here's the same word in the original language in romans chapter 13 verse 8 the same exact word here it is the first word the word is oh listen to how this verse unfolds it says oh no one anything don't be indebted to anybody Except for this, except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owe no one anything, except you owe them this. You owe them to love each other, for the one who loves one another, or loves another, has fulfilled the law. Now the reason I'm taking you there is because I want you to see that word, oh. Turn back to John chapter 13. I want you to appreciate that that word ought just doesn't do it for me. It may not do it for you. Because there are lots of things that we ought to do. 
I ought to exercise every day. I ought to eat more fruits and vegetables. I ought to change the oil in my car every three months or 5,000 miles. 3,000, excuse me. Depends on the car. Lots of things I ought to do. I ought not swim after I eat. Is that even true? But man, ought just doesn't do it for me. I like that word owe a lot better because when you contrast this ought, you ought to do this for one another with you owe, then you realize that I owe my service and my love to one another. When you take in what he's saying, this God who's received all things into his hand, who took on a knee and then bent that knee and then now is washing feet, says, you as my follower go do the same. You owe it to go do the same. You realize that you are indebted to one another. How about that? It's not ought. It's owe. You're indebted to one another. You're obligated to one another. You're bound to serve one another. That's the true weight of this passage. This God who'd received all things into his hands, who had all power and dominion, now looks you in the eyes and says, you go serve. You owe it to each other. We've lived in our home for five years. And, uh, you know, naturally when you move to a new place, you get a phone number. I know a lot of people use their cell phone now. It's kind of a new age, but I'm old-fashioned in that we actually have a real phone. Works in our house. And we got this new phone number, and within days, man, we started getting phone calls for this dude named Romero. We're like, no, Romero doesn't live here. This is a new We just moved here. We're looking around for Romero. No. <laughs> Romero doesn't live here. And then for the last five years, we've gotten a lot of calls for this dude named Romero. And what we've realized is that all these people are searching for Romero because of what he owes that he hadn't paid. It's like three or four calls a week by this point. We'll sometimes go through the process where you actually punch a number and then you can speak to a human. And we'll speak to that human and say, look here, when people move, they get new numbers. And I promise you, Romero's not here. You can come inspect but they persist three or four calls a week, five years later, and I realized that my boy Romero must have had quite a trail of unpaid bills. Despite the fact we'll go through that process and they'll say, okay, we won't call you anymore. We'll have a break of a couple weeks and then they'll start back up again. When I think about God's people, when I think about myself, when I don't stoop and serve, When I'm unfaithful doing what God has charged me to do, this God, this knee-bearing God, this knee-bending God is charging me to do, I realize that what I am is essentially a spiritual Romero, negligent, with a pretty bad name. Romero's got a bad name in our It's like a bad name. It's like a dirty word. Romero. Don't say that. (laughs) Do you want to be that in Greenville? Do you want to be that in your family? Romero. If any of you have the name Romero, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Or if you know Romero, hey, you should live in Greenville. About five years ago, he moved away. I'm going to call him. And we don't want to be Romero in Greenville. And realizing if we're negligent in this charge, this thing that we owe to serve one another, that's what we are. All show, 
no go. Taking and never giving. Terminal Romero's. We have no salt. We have no light. We have no aroma. We have no teeth. We have no message. We can preach it. We can talk about it. But where it has oomph is when we get on down on our knees and we serve one another. That's where the rubber meets the road. Now, Jesus in verse 16, back in John chapter 13, look at that. Look what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, you really should pay special attention. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is the Ben version of what he's just said. It essentially goes something like this. Who do you think you are, guys? Who do you think you are to try and get away with something that I did? If you're going to be my servant, you're going to do what I did. Are you better than your master? Where you think you can get away with not doing what your master has done? The thought is ridiculous. You serve as I have served, is essentially what Jesus is saying. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is a passage that really in many ways kind of captures the last three sermons. And it's an appropriate place for us to go just for a couple minutes before we move on. I want you to see this picture. It takes all three sermons together. It takes the thing that we did a couple weeks ago where we looked at it from the, the throne room. It takes what we did last week where we're going, God, what are you doing bending your knee and serving as a slave? And then it incorporates the charge. And then in this passage, the charge starts at the beginning. And Paul is giving to the charge to the church at Philippi. And listen to what he says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's way of saying, serve one another. As I have served. That's Paul's version of what we're seeing from Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 14. The same charge. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, though he was surrounded by myriads and myriads, bunches and bunches of angels, though he had 24 white-haired regal elders on their faces, casting their thrones at him, though he's got creatures built on committee, singing around him all day long, saying, worthy is the Lamb. Though he's all those things, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, he bent his knee, being born in the likeness of men. He had a knee, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This passage in Philippians takes the whole thing together. If you don't take these things together in one view, if you don't take the throne room viewpoint, if you don't take the reality that God is a, the, the alpha servant in view, and you try and serve on your own, you're going to serve in the flesh, and that will actually be sin. But whenever you take these things in view, like Paul is charging the church at Philippi, when you take them together, did God... God wasn't supposed to be here. But God took on a knee and bent it. And then you serve in response to that? That's called worship. And that's fulfilling the charge that he's given us to do. You can't serve apart from worship. You can be busy in the name of Jesus. But that's not service, kingdom service. Now, what I want to do in the next few minutes is consider this charge. 
I want to consider it from three different directions. First of all, I want to consider the extent of our charge to serve. How low does it go? That's what we're going to deal with first. The second thing, I want to deal with the character of the service that we're charged with administering. The extent, how low, and then secondly, what it's supposed to look like. And third, we're going to deal with the impact of that service. First, let's deal with the extent. Turn back to John chapter 13. I want you to see this. I've mentioned it before. Scott sung it in the song that he wrote last week that we sung this morning about him washing Judas' feet. Look at John chapter 13, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, that he is referring to Judas. What I want you to appreciate and know is that Judas was at this meal, that Judas supped with God, and that God, bearing a knee, bending a knee, washed his feet. When you ask the question, how low should service go, you've got to reckon with the reality that infinite majesty, infinite glory, infinite holiness, with myriads and myriads of angel worship, came all the way down to the lowest of low, washing Judas' feet. He spanned the continuum. (laughs) Is there anybody that you could imagine that could be more scummy or dirty or wicked than Judas? Man, his name has just become a household name for wickedness. And Jesus washed his feet. I think what it tells us is that there's no foot too nasty, no toe too grimy, no life too low. This same Jesus that washed their feet preached that we are to love our enemies and we are to pray for those who persecute us. He says we are to love and serve the unlovable. Even the wicked love the lovable. That ain't impressive. Emphasis for bad grammar. That ain't impressive. Love and the lovable. But serving and loving the unlovable, now that is going to be stark. That's going to stand out as something that's unique and something that's altogether different. When you ask the question, what's the extent of our service? It goes that low. Now, if you're like me, you're pretty challenged by this. In fact, I can imagine if I were in the worship service right now, sitting in a pew, hearing this sermon, I'd be like, man, I've heard that before. How many times have I failed in that area? You don't know the dirt bags that I run with. I mean, that's the thought that I could have had and a thought that I probably have had in the past for a similar sort of sermon. I'm pretty challenged by this, and I must admit, I need a little bit more to bend me to the unlovable. Here's that something that will take you to your knees. Turn to Luke chapter 22. (laughs) Context is everything. It's times like this, the passage that we're about to engage, where I'm so thankful for the Gospels. Essentially, the Gospels, if you want to know what they are, it would be like standing on a corner at an intersection where there's a car wreck in front of you, and you've got three other people that are standing on other three corners. They, too, see the car wreck, and they give varying testimonies, all of which are true. And a good cop is going to gather the details from all witnesses to where you have this robust picture of the truth. And this is a great example of that. I want you to listen to this. In Luke chapter 22, let me give you the context. 
We read here often whenever we take the Lord's Supper together because the Lord's Supper has just taken place. That supper is the same supper that we're reading about in John chapter 13. The very same supper on the night before his death. Now listen to what's happening in this supper. They've just eaten. Christ has just given him the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's just given him the cup. This is the cup that's poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. And then look at verse 24. This thing just blows my mind. If you get this this morning, this will likely be the most convicting issue for the morning for you right here. And you're well on your way to worship if you get it. It says, a dispute arose among them. As to which of them, this is the disciples that are arguing, as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. I want you to take this in. Jesus is breaking bread, pouring wine, having the Lord's Supper with them. It's the night before he's going to be nailed to a cross. He's having his last meal with them. He's giving them, man, these chunky sermons, these meaty sermons that we're going to be bathing in for the next few months, years maybe. And they're sitting around bickering and arguing about who's going to be the greatest. I can't help but wonder if it's at the moment that they're bickering and talking about who's going to be the greatest. Maybe the sons of of Zebedee, James and John, are saying, no, I'm going to sit at the right hand. No, I'm going to sit at the right hand. Peter, he's elbowing. I'm going to sit there. He's the one talking. He talks to me all the time. They're arguing and bickering about it. I can't imagine that it just sounds like God for Jesus to stand up at that very moment and to remove his outer garments and to take a towel and put it around his waist. And while they're bickering, they're not even paying attention to him while he's pouring water in a basin. And they're bickering about who's going to be the greatest while he begins to wash their feet. Listen to what he says. He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. You hear this? We don't know that it happened at this very moment, but it sounds like God scrubbing between fishermen's feet while he's saying this. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table? are one who serves. Imagine what they were thinking as he's saying these words. Imagine what John is thinking as he's recording these words in John 13. You ever wonder if the original manuscripts had tear stains on them? You ever wonder if John is writing this story in John chapter 13 and he's remembering this story? If he's not weeping weeping over his wickedness? Arguing about who's going to be the greatest. He said, it is not the one who reclines. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You've got to take in this context for this story because it just explodes John 13. These guys are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're dining with infinite glory, sitting with the one in whom all things are held together. They're reclining at the table with the one who scooped the oceans, the one who piled up the mountains, the one who cast the stars, and they're bickering over who's going to get their due. It's amazing. Moved me beyond this picture of Judas. That's what this did. 
I urge you to really move with me beyond the marvel that Jesus washed Judas' feet and taking the shocker that Jesus, washed, that Jesus washed Peter's feet. Taking the shocker that Jesus washed the sons of Zebedee's feet, James and John, these guys that are bickering about who's going to be the greatest. See, these disciples were a little micro version of what we are. These disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They reflect our humanity so accurately. This is what we're prone to. When I'm talking with people about their problems at work or the problems at their marriage, and I don't get to talk with people about their problems at church very often because they're just gone right down the road. But those rare occasions when I do get to talk to people about their problems in community, here are some of the things that I hear. I'm not getting what I deserve. I want to sit at the right hand. I'm not getting what I'm owed. I deserve better. I want the best for me me and mine. I want to sit at the right hand of Jesus. How dare you not give me the best? And these disciples are a little picture of who we are. Here's the rich fuel that you need, that I need to stoop to even the most unlovable, is realizing that you're not lovable either. I'm not either. No one's righteous. No, not one. Listen listen to some of these passages. Romans chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read it to you. Romans chapter 3. Listen to this. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Put your name in there. Not just Judas. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps. Is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who? No one. No, not one. What is he doing washing any feet? It's only when that hits you square in the eyes realizing that all are unworthy of a good foot washing, that you'll have the resources to wash the unlovable. Fellow unlovables. What makes it hard is when we think we're better than the next dude. That's what keeps us from really getting down on our knees. Things get real level when you take it in perspective. I was thinking about the kind of geometrically, mileage-wise, it would be like Christ being the picture, a picture of this furthest star that we can even see with telescope, being a picture of the distance from Christ's holiness and perfection and majesty from us, the distance from that furthest star that you could possibly imagine to a worm's back or a worm's belly. <laughs> I'm going to call that nominal. I'm going to call that, that's not really a difference. The difference between me and Peter, the difference between me and Judas is so nominal, we can so get on our knees and serve the worst, the scummiest, the most unlovable, realizing that we too are unlovable. Now, secondly, I want to deal with this morning the character of the service that we're charged with administering. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. this little passage right here this when i was thinking about i was telling you at the beginning of the sermon that you're really gonna have to work this morning this is one of those places 
If you're thinking about lunch, you're not going to get it. This is going to be kind of a blank in your morning. And it could be a treasure. So just pray, Lord, give me this extreme attention right now. Give me this extreme focus so I can engage what I'm about to engage. If you've taken in all this this morning and you've looked at it from the throne room and you've looked at it from ground level and you're going, God, what are you doing? Kneeling, bending, washing feet. And then you're hearing the charge from the living God, the one that scooped the oceans, looking at you saying, you do as I did and do. You're missing out if you don't understand the nature and the character of this service. You got the extent. <laughs> it has no bottom. Jesus washed Judas' feet. But let's talk about the character of that service now. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Look at this passage. Paul is writing to a young pastor. In verse 6 he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Okay, that word good, that, good, that word good in the original language is the word kalos. It also means beautiful. You'll be a good and a good beautiful servant. You'll be the picture of foot washing if you put these things before the brothers. Now, if you're like me, you're going, okay, great, I'm getting it, but what are the things? Let's look at the things. Look back at the beginning of chapter 4. It says, now the Spirit expresses, expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And listen, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Are those these things? Is Paul charging Timothy saying, You're going to be a good servant. You're going to be great at washing feet. You're going to be a beautiful foot washer if you teach people, your people, these things. Are these things just that everything is good? good created by God or can we go back a little bit further can we go a little bit earlier see our chapter breaks in our Bible rob us oftentimes of missing out this big oomph thing that we can walk away with look at verse 14 of chapter 3 that's where you got to work listen to this it says I hope to come to you soon but I'm writing these things huh it's the same thing he said put before the brothers. These things. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Listen to what he says next. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. I'm going to tell you right now, these are the things. <laughs> these are the things to put before your people as a good, beautiful servant. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. In other words, this Jesus took on flesh. This Jesus was perfect. He preached. He did miracles. He did things that only God could do. He said, I'm God. And then he was nailed to a cross. He was resurrected, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Teach these things to your people. That's being a good servant. When I read that, now I admit that's hard work. There's even still a little more work there I'm not going to take you on. 
But that's hard work making that transition to figure out what these things are. These things that we put before the brothers to be a good and beautiful servant of Christ is the truth. The gospel. We have this picture of service being created from the parables like the Good Samaritan, which I appreciate. That's a great parable. And I also appreciate the charge from James. Listen to it. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you who says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We walk away from verses like that and from parables like the Good Samaritan, thinking that the fullness of service toward one another is to give them a coat when they're cold. Or to give them a cheeseburger when they're hungry. And what we realize here, when Paul is talking to Timothy, he says a good and beautiful servant is going to put the truth before others. That hit me square in the eyes as I realized without putting the truth before people that if they, even though they have physical needs, everybody's got physical needs. Without putting the truth before them, we are putting Band-Aid on cancer. Somebody that's hungry, you give them a meal. Somebody that's cold, you give them a coat. Somebody that's thirsty, you give them something to drink. That's great. Knock yourself out, like James said. But James was painting the picture of faith having movement. Faith having hands and feet and a mouth and actually doing something. He wasn't presenting the fullness of service and servanthood. What you've got to appreciate is that without putting the truth before them, we're putting a Band-Aid on cancer to give a meal to the hungry or a drink to the thirsty or a coat to the freezing. Without putting the truth before them is like finding someone drowning and instead of giving them the one thing that will save them, we medicate them with other things. The dude that's drowning here, I'm going to give you a cheeseburger. I'll tell you what, dude, drowning, I'm going to go cut your grass. Man, I don't need that. Who's not thankful for getting their grass cut? But I'm drowning. The problem is the people that we're dealing with, they don't know they're drowning. And they can take that cheeseburger and say, thanks, that was good. No, no. Man, my yard looks great. But without the gospel, we put a Band-Aid on it. True servanthood, true slavery. If we're to be servants of Christ, good service, beautiful service, puts the truth before others. That's the character of servanthood. I think about Paul talking to the church at Ephesus, writing to them about marriage and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, we were just there recently. You don't need to turn there unless you really want to. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. We were just here a couple weeks ago. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It doesn't say having cleansed her by washing of water with a cheeseburger. Or grass cutting. Or a bottle of Evian. They didn't even make that anymore. Man, it's washing with the word. That is true servanthood. Jesus told a thirsty Samaritan lady, he said, I'm the living water. He put the truth before. He told a hungry crowd that he had fed the day before. And then he walks across the Sea of Galilee and they follow him around there. And he says, you're just here for lunch again. He told a hungry crowd, don't work for food that perishes, work for food that lasts to eternal life. Believe on him whom he has sent, because I'm the bread of life. He put the truth 
before him as the model servant. So the good and beautiful servant puts the truth before others. The thing that I was praying at the beginning of the sermon this morning is that some of the shepherds in this room may for the first time recognize that you're being equipped for something after. If you're just getting your church on, hey man, that sure ministered to me. I sure did get, ooh, I was convicted this morning. What's for lunch? Man, you're being equipped for something. That's like showing up training for combat and that the training is the fullness of it and never stepping out there in harm's way and engaging someone. Man, we are being equipped for worship and wonder. And what's taking place right here is so that you can have something to serve another with. If the best you got is a cheeseburger, they're still drowning. I mean that for shepherds, man. That's a burden for me. That you will connect the dots and realize I got to be there on Sunday or I got to go get it if I'm absent because I'm being equipped for something. And if I don't have that, then the very thing that I may need to minister to my children or to serve my wife or to serve my neighbor, I may not have. So there's an urgency in engaging Sunday morning so that you can serve one another as the good and beautiful servant Jesus finished that section with if you know these things blessed happy fortunate favored are you if you actually do them (laughs) how about a novel thought like actually doing it isn't that crazy going to church isn't the end being part of a people and walking on a journey together Eating this book is being equipped for something to be a salty, bright, aromatic people out there. If you connect those dots, man, we're well on our way to out loud worship where lost sheep are going to get found. Where people are going to smell that aroma and say, mmm, that smells good. I want some of that. But you've got to connect those dots. Third thing I wanted to engage today 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Turn there. 1 this is the impact. We dealt with the extent of service, that it goes mighty low. We dealt with the character of service. That we serve with cheeseburger. We serve with maybe cheeseburger and a big old life-given word. And the impact is so beautifully shared right here in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Paul writes, he says, Though I am free from all, Paul wasn't a slave. He says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant a bondservant, a slave to all. And here's a henna clause. I've told you about this before. These so that's are that, a little bitty word that we can so easily move beyond. He said, I've, been, I've made myself a servant to all so that, that, in order that, I might win more of them. You want to know what the impact of this service is? Is that we may win more. That God may draw more. 
I hope that you have something in you, some burden for families, for workmates, for friends that aren't in the faith. I hope you have some burden for people that you walk with, that you work with, that you engage, that they will know and walk with and love the living God. I hope you've got some burden about that. And what you've got to appreciate is that that burden will be actually realized with service. People ask, what's your evangelism program? <laughs> Just being a servant. So it, it's, not an, it's not in a bulletin. No, it's not in there. There's no name for it. There's no cool outline. What's your evangelism program? We're just a bunch of slaves. We're a bunch of slaves to one another. We're slaves in the office. We're not fighting to get what we think we're owed. We're coming in low. We're washing feet, not just the feet of the saints, but also the feet of the wicked. Man, that's evangelism right there. The way to illustrate what Christ has done for us is by doing what He did, coming in low and serving. Washing the feet of the unlovable with the good news of Jesus Christ. I was really convicted last week in that Romans passage that people were probably still so in shock over the first 10 minutes they didn't get this. What I was in shock over was Romans chapter 15, verse 8, that I was apologetic about preaching on servanthood. That's not flashy. It's overwhelming thought in me that I didn't even recognize. You can't build a church preaching on servanthood. <laughs> That's lame. In Romans 15, verse 8, it says that Christ became a servant, a bondservant, a slave. And actually, I think in that case, it's diakonos, deacons. He became a servant to the circumcised to show, in order to show the truthfulness of God. When that hit me, I realized, and even coupled with this, I realized that our message has teeth. Our message has oomph. Our salt is salty. Our aroma is sweet. Or at least it's aromatic. It won't be sweet to all. But our light is bright. If we are but serving. It validates the gospel that we try, are trying to share. What happens if we don't do it? It's a lie. Now it's not a lie. They think it is. Your workmates, your friends, your family members say, oh, you just like to rest. You ain't the real deal. I'll leave you just briefly. A couple of ways to start doing this. Just real practical, down to earth. Don't, don't get your stuff together. You can close your Bibles. But everybody else freeze. We're not done. A couple ways to start doing this. First of all, I'm going to go back to it again. You've got to marvel and wonder. If you start trying to do this and you separate the wonder that God took on a knee and that God bent it, then you're going to serve in the flesh, and that's called sin. You've got to be fueled by worship and wonder first. But here's a couple places where this can find purchase. At home, first of all. Let's start at home. Shepherds, you're not owed service. Men, especially, that are off doing a hard job all day long, you're not owed service the minute that you walk in the door. The world is not beholding to you. Your kids are not beholding to you. Your wife is not beholding to you. 
In fact, according to what we studied today, when you show up, you owe them service. How about that? That'd be a great start. Where shepherds are actually doing this at home, where kids are going, this is for real. My dad is for real. He's not a terminal horses behind talking about Jesus. He's serving me between Sundays. He's modeling for me what service looks like. He's serving mommy. He's helping mommy with life. And he's washing her with the ministry of the word. He's serving her the way Pastor Ben talked about. And I'm kind of believing what he's saying now. Secondly, open your home. The first thing was begin at home. The second thing was open your home. The thing that you may not realize, us private people that have garage, automatic garage door openers, we drive into, we shut, go get behind our computer and enter our virtual world, but never really engage anyone, never have anybody in our home. For those of you who are in that place, I hope you're going to be convicted in the next few minutes and realize that our homes... That is one of the most practical servant tools you've got. Man, some of the most awesome conversations that Jesus ever had with his disciples was over chow. How about having somebody in your home and feeding them and sitting together, dining together, talking and fellowshipping? We have an opportunity to demonstrate extreme servanthood to others in escorting them into our most genuine and authentic place. Let's try servanthood at home. Because you're going to find that you'll talk about things that matter. And that seems to always happen over food that matters. Good food. Serve others your best and see what God does with that relationship. There's other ways that can be lived out. I'm going to put together a shepherd's guide tonight and get that out to you either tonight or this morning or tomorrow morning. And shepherds, I ask you to just search this thing with me. Chew on it with me. Let's try to figure out how can we serve one another. In a people, in our home, in our neighborhood, in our workplace. How can we be this Christ? How can we live like Him? How can we bring glory to Him that some may be one, more may be one? Search that with me. Let me pray. Lord, I'm thankful for the journey this morning. I'm thankful for the extreme slavery, servanthood of Christ. I'm thankful that He modeled one who deserved everything and gave up everything, even to the point of death. Lord, I'm thankful that He washed Judas' feet. I'm thankful that He washed our feet. Lord, I pray that those sort of shocking realizations will be what fuels us to wash one another's feet. Even the most ugly among us. Lord, we worship you right now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.
Okay, I got a little report there that uh, Marie is out of surgery and doing well, and Phoebe was in distress uh, in the womb, but she is doing well, and she is pink right now, which I think is a good sign, I guess. So that's a good report. We'll pray for her again in a moment. I, I was uh, convicted a couple weeks ago thinking about the contrast between how we handle Sunday nights in our home, our weeknights with our kids. We're like, kids, we've got to get you to bed at a reasonable hour tomorrow's school day. Compared to Saturday nights. Oh, it's weekend night. And then, you know, you stay up late and let them romp around. And then we do the adult versions of that. Stewing up all kind of crazy stuff. And you come in here on Sunday morning, you realize, hey, man, this is harder than a school day. I mean, there, there was some heavy, thick stuff today that you had to go on this journey on. So most of you did. Some of you were in the sleep zone. Uh, that's okay, man. I, I, I didn't always sleep through sermons, but occasionally I did. But I encourage you, man, that come on Sunday mornings equipped and ready and alert to engage something eternal because you contrast math on Monday morning with this on Sunday morning we just may let our kids stay up on the weeknights we wouldn't do that but I want them to be alert and ready to dine on Sunday mornings and now for really for the first time in the last few months is we're praying together on Sunday mornings I'm praying for the kids and praying for Christy that they will actually engage what takes place that this is a, a real encounter with the living God that it's not just us getting our church on that's what we're prone to just getting, okay, got my check in the block. I'll be back next week. We can actually engage the living God. And our lives can be transformed and changed. And God can be glorified through that whole work. If we're rested, if we're engaged, if we're in intentional, if we're asking Him, Lord, if it's Your will, grow us up to maturity. Begging for it. I encourage you to think along those lines. Remember, this isn't a game. We're not a club. We're not just another activity on your organizer, daytimer, or... Outlook, calendar. We are people on a journey. So I encourage you to uh, be intentional, being ready for this. We're dining. A couple quick announcements. Next week, we're not going to be here physically. We're going to be over at Aunt Char's Park in a big old tent. Uh, 10, 10, 15 or so, something, something like that. Come early for Starbucks coffee and Sweeties donuts, and we'll have some fellowship. And then at 1045, we'll have corporate worship out there at the park. Uh, in the days prior, we're going to engage the neighborhoods around there with some flyers just saying, hey, if you're not part of a church home, we'd love to have you. That's what we're doing. We're not trying to woo people away from other churches, but a lot of this community is not engaged in a, in a body at all. So we want them to know we're going to be worshiping out loud there. We're going to own this ground this Sunday. And it belongs to the city, but Sunday morning, we're going to own it. And we're going to worship on it. And it's going to be salty and it's going to be a bit bright for that morning. So we want to encourage people to connect and uh, give them an opportunity to connect. Uh, one other announcement. Tonight, the ladies are doing something. It's called Titus Ladies or something like that. Something to do with Titus where these ladies of all different ages, young girls on up to our, our most senior. I'm trying to think of a nice way to say that. Our, our more mature ladies. Exactly. Thank you. The whole continuum spectrum of ladyhood is invited tonight, and there's some flyers on that table outside where it's really ladies just saying, hey, we want to connect with each other and walk with each other. We want to disciple each other. We want to be intentional about being on this journey together, this life-on-life -life journey that we're part of. So it's not a program. It's not an activity. It's just people engaging each other. Y'all stand, and we'll dismiss.
Lord, we thank you for our time together in the Word this morning. We thank you for the journey. We even thank you for the difficulty. Lord, we appreciate that the challenges of the journey make us need you more, make us cling to Christ more, grow us downward in in humility, and they grow us upward in worship and wonder. Lord, I pray that as a result of this morning, a couple things that take place, we'll see the just incredible, scandalous servanthood of Christ where God took on a knee and God bent a knee. And then we'll serve in response to that in humility, fearfully, aggressively, relentlessly in worship. We'll serve one another, even the most wicked. Thank you for the sweet privilege of being on this journey with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.